0: Thank you, and I want to add my welcome. It's a real joy to have you back, and I believe that the Lord is going to give us a great semester. We are already excited because we have exceeded our anticipated enrollment for this semester uh, by quite a large margin, and more people are still registering, and that's exciting. We really see the hand of God in this, and we, we want to give Him praise and thanks for that. Uh, We had hoped and prayed for a certain enrollment, and we're well beyond that even now and have uh, the rest of the week, and I think some will come in on Monday. So we just thank the Lord for a larger enrollment than we even expected. The Lord has gone beyond our faith, I guess, in this case. I want to just make one comment. I don't want to talk about myself at all, but over the Christmas holiday, I just want to tell you something that I think reflects something about what our school stands for. I had the occasion to spend three days with our basketball team at Chico State University as a part of the Chico State Tournament. They were all universities except for us, and uh, we were the only Christian college. And people kept uh, asking me because I was wearing clothes that said the Master's College. What is that place? And uh, what do you do there? And I had a wonderful time to uh, to talk about the fact that it's a wonderful Christian college, and I do very little there, uh, but uh, enjoy it anyway. Um, By the time the tournament was over, the man who the tournament is named for came up to me, and uh, there was quite a large crowd there. As you can imagine, it's the biggest thing happening in Chico, that and watching the uh, almonds grow. And uh, uh, this man came to me, and uh, he said, I understand you're the president of the Master's College. And I said, I am. And he said, I just want to tell you, he said, this tournament is named for me, and I've been associated with this tournament for 35 years. And I want to tell you that I've never seen any young men like yours. He said, you have every reason to be proud. It's a very unusual group of young men. I've watched them very closely for three days. And in my heart, I was so grateful to the Lord because he had given us the opportunity to have that kind of testimony. And that's really what it's, what it's all about for us in whatever involvement we have in the outside world is to demonstrate exactly what Dave was saying a moment ago, our dependency on God, our integrity spiritually, our commitment to ministry, and our love for one another that's expressed in community. And they saw that. And I was so thrilled and thankful to the Lord. had the opportunity to spend some time with them in a Bible study and a time of prayer one afternoon, and to know their hearts and know that they wanted to represent you. And more than that, to represent the Lord Jesus Christ was a great encouragement to me. By the way, you'll want to come tomorrow night because there's a very important game going on tomorrow night. I'd be here if I could, but I have a more important thing, and there aren't very many things more important than that. But I'll be preaching the Word, and that is more important than that. So uh, you come tomorrow night and and support those guys as they represent Christ in that way. Open your Bible, would you, to the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. It seems to me a long time since I've spoken in chapel. and. Uh, I'm so happy to be back and to share with you some things on my heart. I would like to encourage you. I've never done this in the years that I've been here, but I would like to encourage you. uh, Over the Christmas holiday, I did a special series on the conscience at Grace Church. Uh, I have been so concerned about this issue of the conscience. It is very infrequently addressed. Some of you may have been here for... That series, I think I preached three messages on the conscience, maybe four, but I think it was three. And I would just encourage you that those, those could be life changing truths for you. If you have the opportunity, you might want to get those tapes. You can get them at Grace Church or even stop by my office and they'll be glad to order them for you at a reasonable cost. I don't like to repeat here in chapel the things I do at the church because I, I, I want to carve out some fresh ground here and don't want to repeat things that you've heard, those of you who attend Grace, but I have been so moved in my own heart about this issue of the conscience that I just commend it to you as something that may have a great impact on your life. I know it has on my life. Look at John 4, chapter, chapter 4 and verse 20. I want to read a few verses to you, and then we'll talk about them. Jesus here, having a conversation with a, an adulterous woman, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And she's speaking in verse 20, and she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Ten times in those verses some form of the word worship appears. Ten times. Eight times as a verb and a couple of times as a noun. It's not too hard to figure out what the theme is. It's a text about worship. And that is at the very heart of our dependency on God. The very heart of our relationship with God can be defined as a relationship of worship. To borrow the words of Jesus from Matthew 22:37, He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And that's just another way to define worship. Worship is loving God with every part of your being. My favorite description of a Christian is found in Philippians 3.3, and I may be the only person in the world who has that as a favorite description. But it says this, We are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and who have no confidence in the flesh. What a great definition of a Christian. We are worshipers who glory in Christ Jesus. The Christian life can be defined as a life committed to loving and worshiping God and Christ. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, our Lord quoted that very important Old Testament verse from Deuteronomy 6.13 in His conversation with Satan, and He said, You shall worship the Lord your God. Here, in the text I just read, we are told that the Father is seeking True worshipers That defines what we are as Christians We are in a relationship of dependency upon God In which we offer Him unending love, adoration, praise, and worship On the other hand Those who are unregenerate and unsaved Those who are headed for eternal judgment Are described in in Romans 1 As those who refuse to worship God those who do not honor Him and do not give Him thanks. It is characteristic of unbelieving people not to worship God, not to love God. It is characteristic of believing people to love and worship God. That's basic, and you know that, and perhaps you are familiar with that from many years ago and hearing the Word of God taught. But if there's anything that Christianity is losing a grip on today, it is that. We do not live in a contemplative culture. We live in an active culture. We don't think very well, in fact, we think very poorly, and not often at all. I remember reading some years ago about a distinguished explorer who was doing some kind of a forced trek across Africa for some compelling reason. And he had gotten all of his native burden bearers together and loaded them down with all the stuff they had to carry. And he forced marched them for two days across the burning sands of the desert, way beyond their physical limitations. And on the third morning, when they arose to start again, none of them would move. They all s- sat stoically and silently in the morning sun. The explorer, in frustration, went to the chief and said, "'What's going on?' And he said, "'You'll have to wait a while. They're waiting for their souls to catch up to their bodies.'" And I think if there's anything that plagues the church today, it is a, a rat race mentality and busyness that needs to stop and settle down and wait for the soul to catch up with the body. We, we are very good at activity. We are not nearly so good at worship. The contemplative kind of life that focuses on loving God and adoring God. has been deprioritized and continues to be deprioritized in the pragmatic emphasis of our modern church culture. Now, the word here for worship, I just mentioned it to you, is proskuneo. Basically, that old word meant to bow down and kiss the hand of a monarch, to prostrate oneself as people did before kings and potentates and authorities. And that's precisely the intent of it. It means to place yourself in obeisance before an infinitely holy and sovereign God. To prostrate yourself and to bow down. And you find that word commonly used throughout the New Testament. There is a second word in addition to proskuneo. It's the word latruo, which is also used in the New Testament, which means to render homage, to render honor, to render due service. Both of those New Testament words refer to worshiping God. And they moved to the English language through an old Anglo-Saxon word, "worthship," which has to do with the worthiness of God and that worthiness being acknowledged. So worship simply means to give to God glory and reverence and homage and adoration and praise and glory. And worship needs to be distinguished, as it was on the overhead for you here, from ministry. Worship and ministry are two different things, and if I may be so bold as to say so, worship is more important. Ministry without worship is shallow. Ministry is that which comes down to us from the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the human instrument. Worship is that which goes up from the believer by the Holy Spirit's power through the Son to the Father. Ministry descends, worship ascends. Worship always comes first. Even the angels in Isaiah 6 had six wings, four of them related to worship. With two, they covered their faces in, in the fear of seeing the full holiness of God. With two, they covered their feet lest they stand on holy ground, and only two were used for service. Four for worship, two for service. Priority is always worship, and your life, whatever service it, it may offer to God, is only going to be approved by God when that service flows from a worshiping heart. I've told men through the years who preach the Word of God and teach the Word of God that all ministry is is an overflow of a worshiping heart. All ministry is is the overflow of an adoring heart. All service is is the overflow of love toward God. We have to keep worship in perspective and in priority. And frankly, to put it on the bottom line, you can actually evaluate your commitment to worship by looking at your own heart and discovering how eagerly you attend to worship. You can, you can take a spiritual inventory very fast on your spiritual condition. How eager are you to worship? Are you one of those kind of people who said, Boy, am I glad they have a Saturday night service. I can beat into that place and beat out and have Sunday to myself. Are you one of those kinds of people who says, Well, if I can make it on Sunday morning, I'll go. If I can make it to a Bible study, if I can meet with friends and pray, if it works into my schedule, I'll do it. Or are you the kind of person who has a heart that is so eager to worship, you can't wait till they open the door so you can be there? Are you the kind of person who fills your mind with secular music and secular songs and secular ideas? Or do you find yourself pursuing the things of Christ because your heart is overflowing with spiritual songs and you're singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord and you want to attach it to a tune? You can easily do a spiritual inventory and find out whether you're a worshiping person. When given the opportunity, do you follow after the sports page in Sports Illustrated or do you find yourself drawn to what is really your idol and your God and that which your heart craves God himself, and so you find yourself driven to the Word and books about the Bible and theology and and stories about Christians and how God has transformed lives. I mean, you can do an inventory on your heart. It's that easy. And you can find out whether you're a worshiping person or not. And when you're all alone and you're in the silence, uh, what tunes well up in your heart? What melodies come into your mind? What thoughts? What desires? What longings? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 45:1, "My heart is overflowing with a good matter. I, I'm literally bubbling up and boiling over with the goodness of God." In fact, he said, "My heart is is uh, at a at a fever level of heat, so that it's literally boiling over in adoring worship." How much of that do you experience? Let's look at the text and see a little bit about worship and. And what Jesus had to say about it here. First of all, let me talk about the source of worship. The source of worship. This is very basic. The source of worship. Where does it come from? Where does it start? The end of verse 23. The the Father seeks people to be his worshipers. That's where worship begins. It begins in the redemptive plan of God. Worship is the goal of salvation. Now, let me just kind of give this to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But the reason you were saved was for worship. Remember a few uh, weeks ago when I talked to you about the eternal covenant which the Father made with the Son in eternity past and that the Father wanted to, wanted to demonstrate His love to the Son? You remember that? And so the Father said, I'm going to redeem a humanity and I'm going to give that humanity to the Son and I'm going to give them to Him so that forever and ever and ever and ever throughout all eternity they can praise and glorify His name. That's how I'm going to express my love to the Son by pulling together an eternal and glorified humanity who will do nothing but praise Him forever and ever and ever. And the point is, the reason you were saved was to become a part of that worshiping community, that redeemed humanity. God redeems men to make them into true worshipers. That's what it says. The Father is seeking true worshipers. He's seeking those who will worship Him and will worship and give glory to His Son. That is the purpose of salvation. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul in 2 Corinthians says, My goal as a minister is to preach the gospel so that people will believe And here is the purpose, so that in believing, they may give glory and praise to God. I mean, that was the whole point. I want to bring them to the place of faith for the express purpose of having them praise God. It was as if he was saying, I preach the gospel in order to add voices to the hallelujah chorus. What a tremendous truth. In other words, you were saved to praise. You were saved to worship. Adam and Eve worshiped God in the garden. Cain killed Abel over the issue of worship. When the patriarchs worshiped God obediently, they were blessed. When they didn't, they were punished. Israel was doomed in the desert because they failed to worship God. to give him honor. Moses never entered the promised land because he refused to worship God in obedience. When God gave the Mosaic law, it was primarily a call to worship. The first element in the Mosaic law was, you shall have what? No other gods before me. I will be your only God. And the law can be fully summed up in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When the Lord gave them a place of worship, whether it was a tabernacle or a temple, in the middle of it he placed a mercy seat, which was a place of worship. In the Old Testament, there are seven chapters and 243 verses to describe the tabernacle whose sole function was worship. And the tabernacle was placed in the center of the camp of Israel with the priests nearest to it. According to Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 2, the task of the priests was to lead the entire nation in worship. Further away were the Levites who served the purposes and needs of worship and then all the twelve tribes, and they all looked at the tabernacle as the focal point of life, worship. In Leviticus 1, when God ordained the ceremonial system, the first act in the ceremonial system was the burnt offering, which was entirely consumed by fire. No part was eaten by the priest and no part was eaten by the worshiper, and the whole thing was offered to God to let everybody know that the initiation of the whole ceremonial system was related to honoring and glorifying God. Being devoted to God alone... We were saved for that purpose. When someone violated the principles of worship, it was very serious. They did it when they worshipped the golden calf, and thousands of them were massacred by God himself. Nadab and Abihu violated worship, and they were killed. Saul violated the principles of worship, acted like a priest, and it cost him his life. Uzzah violated the principles of worship, and God killed him on the spot. And when Jesus came, the whole Jewish nation had violated the principles of worship, and Jesus went into the temple and took a whip and cleaned the place out and pronounced eternal judgment on the purveyors of that false religious system, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. We have been saved to worship. And if you were to question that, you need only to read the book of Revelation and find out what we're going to do forever— In chapter 5, we get a little glimpse into heaven, and what are they doing there? They're worshipping. In chapter 4, we see the same thing. We look at heaven and the beings in heaven are worshipping. They're worshipping again in chapter 5. They're worshipping again in chapter 11. We look at heaven. We get another glimpse of believers in chapter 14. They're worshipping. In chapter 15, they're worshipping. In chapter 19, they're worshipping. And in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, they're worshipping. And all we're ever going to do throughout all eternity is serve and worship the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, we are to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. As a result, let us worship. If we can't, from the depths of our heart, draw out worship to God in view of what he has given us, an unshakable and an eternal kingdom, then we are expressing the most severe kind of ingratitude, aren't we? Romans 12, 1 says that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is an act of spiritual worship. First Peter 2, 5 says we are to offer to God spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him. So, the source of worship is in our salvation. We were saved to be worshipers. If that's not the priority of your life, then you really are off focus. If you're not, if your heart is not compelled to worship, then somehow you're at odds with the very reason for which you were saved. Secondly, let me say some things about the object of worship, because that's what's in this text, and it's so important. It's very clear here who we worship. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, you'll notice back in verse 23, worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, there are two Aspects then of God that are drawn into worship here. First, in verse 24, God is Spirit. Then in verse 23, God is Father. We worship God as Spirit. We worship God as Father. Now, let me give you a little theology briefly on this. God as Spirit simply identifies God as to His essential being, His essential nature. He is not to be conceived of or represented in material terms. He is not to be made into an idol of gold or silver or wood or any other thing. He is spirit. There is to be no graven image, no replication of God, no idol. You probably remember that when they made the golden calf, they weren't making an image of another God. They were making an image of the true God. They had turned the true God into a calf. They were thinking to worship the true God in an idolatrous fashion. They had reduced God who is spirit into a God who was material. They paid with their lives. Worshiping God as spirit simply means worshiping the true, eternal, omnipresent God. The God who is a spirit in his essential nature. He cannot be reduced to any material designation. You say, what about the tabernacle, and what about the temple, and what about the Holy of Holies, and what about the mercy seat? None of those were were physical replications of God. They were simply symbols to stimulate worship of God who is spirit. But secondly, and this is most important, God is worshipped as spirit, and he is worshipped as Father. Father. Now, I want you to listen carefully because I think this is important. As Spirit, we worship Him according to His essential nature. As Father, we worship Him according to His essential relation. What do we mean by this? When you read the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John, who is it that identifies God as Father continually? Who is it? It's Jesus. In fact, over 70 times, Jesus refers to God In all of them, with one exception, he calls God Father. The only time in the whole New Testament Jesus ever refers to God and calls him anything other than Father was when he was dying on the cross and being separated from God in the act of bearing sin, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time he called him Father. Now listen, this is particularly true in the Gospel of John so that when you see God referred to as Father in the Gospel of John, it is not God as the Father of believers, it is God as the Father of Jesus Christ that is the issue. It was for that very claim that they killed Jesus, because He makes God His Father, they said, His equal. See, Father talks about equal life. Equal nature. A child is one with his father. Like begets like. And for Jesus to always be calling God his father, something, by the way, the Jews did not do, except in a generic, creative, sort of congregational sense, rather than an individual one. For Jesus to continually refer to God as his Father, my Father, my Father, my Father and I, he said that over and over again, and they saw it as blasphemous because he was making himself equal with God. Because he was claiming the same essence as God. So when we worship God, now listen carefully, we worship him as God who is spirit, listen, and we also worship him as God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's another way of saying no man comes unto the Father but by me. There is no true worship of God other than that which recognizes God as spirit and as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can put to rest the question that perhaps people have posed to you What about the heathen? Doesn't God accept their general worship as enough? And the answer is what? No. And that's why we have to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved in the name of Jesus. They have to understand that God is only approachable through the one who was his son. The same, in essence, even the Lord Jesus Christ. The true God is worshipped as spirit and as father of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who would go around saying we worship the true God, the God who is spirit, but they do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh of the same essence as God, God the Father and God the Son. This is what, friends, separates the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and many other cults from true worship and what ultimately will damn them. Now, this is carried out throughout the epistles, and I don't want to beg the point but for example, in, full, in Ephesians 1.3, listen to what the, the benediction is that begins Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you will find that formula repeated over and over and over again. Down in verse 17 of Ephesians 1, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, the glorious Father. You find it again in 2 Corinthians 1-3, you find it in Philippians 2, you find it in Romans, you find it in 1 Peter, you find it in 1 John, you find it in 3 John. Over and over, Christ is called, uh, God is called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is much more significant to gospel intent than the Father of believers. He is our Father in the sense that the Scriptures tell us He is, but the whole emphasis of the New Testament is to dramatize the reality that Jesus is the Son of the living God and that God is only approached through His Son. So, the only true worship has as its object the God who is Spirit and the God who is one with His revealed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I point that out because I want you to understand that nobody can truly worship the true God as He demands to be worshipped unless He acknowledges that He and His Son are one. We worship... The God who is Spirit through faith in His Son. Thirdly, the nature of worship. And this is very important. It tells us here that we are to worship in verse 23 in Spirit and truth. And again in verse 24 at the end, worship in Spirit and truth. Uh, Now this is, should be anyway obvious to us. It's a wonderful, wonderful little ...duet to understand about worship. Let me give you a little background. In 722 B.C., the Northern Kingdom, as you probably remember, was taken captive by Sargon, and the ten tribes that occupied the Northern Kingdom were taken away, basically never to return. But when that captivity occurred, some of the poor were left, allowed to remain. They eventually intermarried with uh, foreigners, Babylonians, and others... And that mixed group of sort of poor Jews who intermarried with these Babylonians became known as what? Samaritans. And they had intermarried. They were called Samaritans because the capital city of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And it was Judaism mixed with paganism. Now, the Jews in the southern kingdom, namely the tribes of uh, Judah and Benjamin, would not accept these Samaritans. In fact... Nobody went near them. Jews who walked from the north to the south, south to the north or north to the south, went around Samaria. That's what was so notable about Jesus saying, I must needs to go through Samaria. Jews didn't do that because it was desecrating. So there was really no way for the whatever residual Jewish feelings of worship still existed among the Samaritans to come to fruition because they had no access to the temple. They couldn't go into the southern kingdom. So they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in the north. It was destroyed in 125 B.C. So by the time Jesus comes along in John 4, they don't have a temple anymore because it had been destroyed. But they still have Mount Gerizim, and that's where they worshipped. The Samaritans accepted only the Pentateuch, just the first five books of the Old Testament, nothing else. So they had very limited revelation. Much was left out. But you know what they had? They had very spirited worship. If you read anything about Samaritan worship, you will read that it was ecstatic, chaotic, that it was wild, that it was um, uh, sort of mystical, and that they got carried away. And we could safely say they uh, they worshipped in spirit. But unfortunately, they were missing what? Truth. Hmm. It reminds me of some charismatics. On the other side were the Jews. They had the truth. But they were cold, and they were dead, and their worship was lifeless and perfunctory and routine, and they lacked what? Spirit. Spirit. Reminds me of some evangelicals. Jerusalem had truth and no spirit, barren orthodoxy. Gerism had spirit and no truth, enthusiastic heresy. Well, we need to be delivered from barren orthodoxy and enthusiastic heresy, don't we? Look what Jesus said. What an indictment of the Samaritan worship. Verse 22, he says, you worship. You say, wow, that's great. Well, wait a minute. You worship that which you don't know. I mean, you're really enthusiastic. You just don't know what you're doing. We, the Jews, we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. You got all the heart and no facts. We got all the facts and no heart. And what the father really wants is both. What he was saying to this woman was, look, the answer isn't on gerizim This this issue of worship that she brought up, she says in verse 20, is it in this mountain or is it down in Jerusalem? He says, neither. The issue with God is not where. The issue with God is spirit and truth. Spirit, that's from within. Truth, that's from without. The truth revealed in the Scripture is outside of me, but my heart commitment to it is inside of me. I want the truth to so move me that I will say with the psalmist in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Undistracted internal worship. Now, you say, well... That's the kind of worship the Father seeks, yes. I'm not sure that I really am fulfilling the wish of the Father in saving me. Uh, Well, welcome to the club. There are a lot of people in that same situation. I'll tell you one thing. Um, You know, or if you stay here long enough, you'll know the truth. You'll be able to worship, and you probably are able to worship even now, according to truth. You understand God as spirit. You understand God as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, the deity of Christ. You understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You understand the doctrines of the New Testament. You understand that God wants to be worshipped. You understand that. You can worship Him because you believe Him as the Creator. You're not an evolutionist, so you can worship Him for His creative power. Uh, you certainly believe in His sovereign providential control of everything happening in the universe. You've certainly come to that conviction, I trust, and you have faith in that, so you're worshipping Him as the true and sovereign God. You believe that He doesn't make mistakes or do things that are wrong and has no iniquity within him so you worship him as an infinitely holy God you believe he is high and lifted up you worship him as majestic and all glorious you you can worship God in truth can't you you're not in ignorance the question is can you worship him in spirit is your heart boiling over with adoration and love and praise to this majestic, infinitely holy, wise, compassionate, gracious, merciful, kind God who has called you to be a true worshiper forever and ever and ever so that he might express his love through you to his Son eternally. Psalm 47, 7 says, Sing praises with understanding. God wants you to have the understanding, but He also wants you to have the understanding so overwhelm you that it comes out in praise. Let me close by just giving you some little practical things that are outlined for us in the 10th chapter of Hebrews that can help us to become true worshipers. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 22 starts out, let us draw near. I just uh, wrote a new book, a devotional book. Actually, it was compiled from things I've taught through the years. And I, I really love the title, Drawing Near, because that's, that's what it's all about, is drawing near to God. I didn't think of that title. The publisher did, and I'm grateful for that. But if we're going to draw near, I mean, if we're going to start to move toward the one on whom our dependency is placed, if we're going to move toward God and be a true worshiper, what has to happen? Here are four things. Let us draw near, number one, with a sincere heart. That's uh, integrity. With undivided affection, undivided loyalty, an undivided soul. Not being double-hearted or double-minded. True heart. Absolutely sincere, without wax. From the Latin sinicera, without wax. In other words, there isn't a fault in our life we're covering over with some hypocritical facade. If we're going to draw near to God and worship in spirit and in truth, we have to have a sincere heart. And I'll tell you, you'll never have a sincere heart until you have a pure heart, right? Right? You've got to deal with the sins of your life. Secondly, draw near with a sincere heart and draw near in full assurance of faith. What does that mean? Well, now remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jews who had spent all their life in Judaism. And they were hanging on the fringes of the New Covenant. And they were saying, you know, everything in the Old Covenant was true. It's all in the Old Testament. We've believed it. We've followed it. We've obeyed it. Now you're telling us to abandon this. And it's not as if it was just some man-made religion. It came from the Old Testament. And you're telling us to move to this new covenant in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that's exactly right. You have to go on. You have to go on to perfection, which is tantamount to salvation in the book of Hebrews. You have to go on. Don't neglect this salvation. Move on from the old to the new. And when he says, come in the full assurance of faith, he is saying, don't look back. Don't look back to the old covenant. Put full confidence in Christ. Full confidence in the provisions of the new covenant. Full confidence in the salvation offered to you. Come first with sincerity and second with fidelity. Give yourself unstintingly to it. Don't look back. Don't hanker for what's behind. Thirdly, come with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, never questioning the legitimacy of this faith in the new covenant, fully assured that it is absolutely true, never looking back, then having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Wow. What does that mean? Well, if A true heart is sincerity, and full assurance of faith is fidelity. This is humility. When was your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience? When did that happen? Happened at the moment of your salvation? The verb having, past tense, your heart already sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You know, one thing that's true about unregenerate people, they have an evil heart, they have an evil mind, so they have an evil conscience. Their conscience just pounds evil on them all the time because that's all there is in their life. When you were saved, you were cleansed from an evil conscience by the cross due to no merit of your own. So if you're going to draw near to God, you draw near in sincerity, you draw near in fidelity, and you draw near in humility, realizing that God in His mercy through the provision of Jesus Christ has washed your dirty life and given you a clean heart and a clean conscience. You come not... Commending yourself to God and not claiming any merit of your own. You come in absolute and total humility And then the fourth component and our bodies washed with pure water This would be purity You come with a clean life not only with a clear clean conscience but a clear life, and of course a clear and clean life will produce a clear and clean conscience. The, the Beatitudes say, happy are the holy, for they will see God. It's another way of saying if you want to enter into fellowship with God and worship God, you need to be holy. So how do we draw near to God in our hearts? How do we become true worshipers? Well, we were saved for that purpose, to worship in spirit and in truth. We're saved to worship the true God who is spirit and is revealed in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only The only way to God through him. How do we engage in that worship? By having an undivided soul, a true heart, sincere, devoted to Christ. He is our only affection. He is our only goal. He is our only object of love and adoration. By fidelity and unquestioning faith that places its trust in the new covenant promises and never looks back. By humility, recognizing that God has provided for us ongoing cleansing in the cross. And humbly, we come out of deep gratitude that God would save such worthless sinners as we. And we, making no contribution to such salvation, have no response possible other than that of humility. And then we come having confessed our sins, forsaken our sins, and had our bodies washed with pure water purity, humility, fidelity, sincerity, when those things exist in your life, you're going to become a true worshiper. It's sort of like what Psalm 29.2 says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Or what it says in Psalm 24, Who will ascend into the holy hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So look at your life, young people, and if you're really not seeing the level of worship that you've heard presented this morning then you've got to do a little inventory you have a divided heart I mean that's obvious something else is stealing your affection and you're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength your faith is wavering your confidence in the resources that are in Christ are wavering because you're attaching yourself to some other things that can never deliver for you what Christ can. Your fidelity is in question. Your humility is in question because if you really are humbled by the provision of Christ on the cross, you couldn't do anything other than worship and worship and worship. And then there's the question of purity. If you're not finding it, your heart is overwhelming to the boiling point with a longing to worship, then there's probably sin in your life someplace. The Lord seeks true worshipers. It's what he saved you for. It's what you'll spend all eternity doing. It's what you should be doing now. Father, we thank you this morning for this reminder again of what is the real heart of the Christian life. We all fall short. Rekindle in us worship. Fill us with praise for you, adoration, love. May that heart of love and worship express itself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. and May it express itself in unending gratitude, thanks unto God, the fruit of our lips. May it express itself in a holy life a worshiping life. And we know that if our life is right, others will see you in us. What a privilege. Lord, we want to come and draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, Having already had our consciences cleansed and purging our bodies from any sin so that we can be the worshipers you want us to be. The promise of Scripture is clear when we walk in the attitude of true worship. We will be blessed. Blessed are the holy For they shall see God. We want to see you and know you. Make us into true worshipers. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.